This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Hello and welcome to Property Patter. My name is Henry Fee and I'm joined today by Tristram van Larvik, a partner in our private property team, and Emma Priest, an associate in our real estate disputes team. We're looking today at sporting rights, including what they are, the arrangements we encounter for the exercise of these rights over land, how these can be terminated, and also how they can impact on the development of land. This is something we see frequently as the political and economic pressures around housing continue, with supply consistently falling short of demand. Tristram, back to basics. What are sporting rights? Sporting rights are, uh, in pure legal terms, a profit prendre, the right for an individual to go onto somebody's land in order to case a shooting, shoot, kill, and take away game from the land. Uh, similarly, the fishing rights, it's the right for an individual to go onto somebody else's land in order to take fish from the land in exactly the same way as a grazing profit prendre is a right for an individual to go onto land in order to take grass from the land, whether that's through grazing, cutting hay, etc. And are these valuable rights, Tristram, to the landowner? Are they a good source of income? Uh, in terms of income, um, it depends very much on the way in which sheep be managed, the the um, or, or the sporting arrangement was managed, where where the greater benefit or the greater um, value lies, which Emma will probably talk about later, is in respect of the impact that those rights could have on preventing development going ahead. Um, but certainly they do have a value in themselves as it's a, it's a commodity that can be that can be sold, leased, etc. And it has value. People like to shoot land or like to fish uh, waters. And how then are these rights documented legally? Uh, there are various ways uh, that the rights can be documented. Um, as you'll be familiar with the concept of a shooting lease. Um, as we've already said, a, a uh, the right to go and shoot on land, shoot, take away game, etc., isn't a isn't a lease. Uh, it's a profit of prendre. It's that grant by a third party. Um, to another third party to go onto their land to, to, to carry out the sporting activity. Um, so how they are um, recorded, one would be in the grant of a profit prendre by way of a term of years, a, I as landowner grant you a right for five, 10 years to come onto my land to shoot, kill, take away game. Um, so that's one that would be what is referred to as the shooting lease. There's not a property interest. It's a lease, but it's a bit confusing, but it's not a lease. Exactly, exactly. However, <laughs> the point I was going to, to, uh, to, to flag, but I'll bring it up now as you've raised it, um, is that there is a slight pitfall that you should be aware of when granting a shoot lease, in that if all you are doing is granting a right to go onto land to shoot, kill, take game, etc., that is a profit of prendre. That's fine. We, 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 we sort of know what that is in terms of legal terms. However, what you quite often see is that as part of the grant of this sporting right, there will be taxed onto that um, a right for the shoot tenant to occupy land. You know, it could be a beta store or something like that, or, or sometimes you see it where the, the keeper's cottage has been tacked onto the sporting lease. Now, in that case, it's very, very important that it is granted as a proper lease with the appropriate rights incorporated in that for exercising the sporting rights. 
particularly as in most cases the shoot is being run as a business because if you which we have seen a case in the past where um, old leases have been granted as a traditional shoot lease, i.e. grant of sporting rights, with a cottage tacked on as an afterthought. The result of which is that the shoot tenant operating the shoot as a business now has a lease of land, i.e. the gamekeeper's cottage that was tacked on, which they are using for um, a business purpose, thereby they have a protected 1954 Act commercial tenancy. So if there is any, the, the sort of the belt and braces approach, and certainly if any land is going to be included um, in the grant of sporting rights is to grant it as a uh, contracted out 54 Act tenancy to ensure you don't have that pitfall. So that is where in that case, the sporting lease does actually truly become a lease. Um, so that's that's one route. Uh, otherwise, um, another um, sporting, the, the right exercise sporting rights are, are also typically seen in reservations from sales off. So they will be accepted and reserved to either to an individual as a sporting right in grace or attached to land as a, as a right of pertinent. Um, uh, you'll regularly see that where you, know, you have estates that sell off fringes of the, the estate who want to ensure that in the future they will be able to continue exercising sporting rights over the land sold off. And then that, that will be enshrined in the, in the transfer, um, you know, historically would have been in the conveyance. Uh, and again, if you're looking at looking at this now from a sort of um, uh, the owner of land affected by sporting rights perspective, it's very important to look at how that right was drafted. Uh, was it drafted to uh, benefit an individual or an individual and their successors in title, which could then run on and on and on, or for a specific area of land? And if you're planning to do anything with the land or, or, or want to somehow uh, extinguish the sporting rights or, or, or maybe you're exercising yourself and want to be able to uh, contact the person or go into negotiations, the person with the benefits of sporting rights, then crucial to then determine what area of land benefits from those sporting rights over your land, uh, which could be an ex you know, um, a massive area of land if you're thinking in the context of a large estate that sold off a, you know, a, um, an outlying part. Thank you, Tristan. And that's perhaps a good point to move then on to Emma. Uh, you usually become involved when things take a contentious turn, such as where an agreement has to be terminated or if there's a dispute regarding the exercise of the rights, which we'll come on to shortly. What is the usual way to terminate these sorts of rights, Emma? Yes, so um, the reality is it can be really difficult, but it, it depends, as Tristan's mentioned, how it's granted, um, and the positions can vary hugely here. Um, so if we have a deed um, that's been entered into that should include an express termination clause, and that will govern how the agreement can be terminated. Um, and that could set out circumstances such as um, it could include a break clause um, and it could also deal with um, termination if, if the party exercising the right hasn't paid any fee that they need to or if there's in fact any breach of the agreement at all. Um, so that's one type of scenario. If it's granted for a term of years, again, that's, that's another way that these agreements can come to an end. Um, we can have sort of difficult legal issues if the scenario arises where Tristan mentioned land is included and either that agreement didn't deal with the 54 Act at all at the time. That's the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954 at all uh, at the time it was granted um, or it did 
exclude the 54 Act, but then on expiry, everyone's just sort of carried on and, and done nothing to acknowledge the end of the term. That can be a problem because that ongoing arrangement, that continuation can mean that the tenancy now has a protection of the Act. And the significance of the Act is that the landowner can only take back possession and terminate if they are able to fulfill quite restrictive grounds set out in the Act, um, some of which require payment of compensation to the tenant. So that's all rather tricky if, if that's the scenario we've got. Um, if, however, we're dealing with rights that have been reserved over land on sale, um, and they either attach the land or to an individual or their successors in title, then generally the only way that these can be terminated is by an express release um, by negotiation. Um, one avenue we, we sometimes see being explored in this context is abandonment. Um, obviously, some of these rights they granted so long ago and people don't know they've got them or that they forgot about them. Um, and they're just not used for, for a very long time. And we see some landowners trying to say, well, actually, they're not being exercised anymore and therefore they've been abandoned. And there we go. Um, it's not as straightforward as that. And that's simply because legally it's just not recognised that, that non-use is sufficient to be a release. There needs to be non-use plus some conduct um, and sort of passive, uh, active communication rather that the rights won't be used by you or any future successor in title. And obviously that's quite a difficult evidential burden to reach. Legally, I should also mention, we've, there's been quite a lot of case law on this. It's quite interesting what people try and argue in this context. But you know, there's been cases where there's been non-use for 175 years and uh, that's still not been sufficient. So these sorts of rights must present a real issue for developers or even landowners who are exploring their options generally in relation to land. So, uh, for example, what would happen if, uh, say, a, a large house builder is looking to build 500 homes on a site, but a, they discover that a party has got sporting rights over that site? And so let's assume that the sporting rights and the development cannot coexist, uh, so that the development is over the entire parcel of land, which is subject to the rights. What happens in this scenario? Yeah, so this is something we do see quite a lot, um, possibly due to the size of the land that's subject to development sites. And um, you know, it's inevitable that there's usually some third party rights on the title that need to be addressed. Um, quite often, in fact, people are surprised that it's sometimes not until quite late in the development process that these are addressed. And I suspect that's simply because um, until such time as, as other consents have been obtained, it's not an issue as such that needs to be addressed. Um, so. Legally, if, if works, say, if, you know, a development work started on land, which will interfere with the rights that have been granted, that will entitle the party with the benefit of those rights to take steps to obtain an injunction from the court stopping those works. So that's the ultimate remedy in quite an extreme scenario. That is pretty extreme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, usually we see people have had discussions and conversations and you know, planning permission has been put in and they've been able to object and things like that. So it, it's, it's rare for it to go to that degree, but that is the ultimate remedy that, that's available. In cases where you've got land subject to development, but it's in fact not uh, the entire area that's, that's subject to the rights. So there's no substantial interference with those sporting rights, which means that they can continue. Um, although there may be a risk of interference, 
usually that can, this can be resolved by the parties giving undertakings in, in to each other not to interfere with those rights in the future so that they can coexist, I guess, the development and those rights, even though on the ground they may be close by. Um, similarly, if you have a party who's looking to develop the land and actually they really don't think these rights will be interfered with at all, they can go and get a declaration confirming that if they think it's going to be an issue. Um, Who provides however, a declaration? From the court, again, so it, it's a remedy that can be awarded by the court. Um, so what we, have, what we normally see is obviously a negotiation, um, and that's people often come to us sort of saying, how much can I get, and how much of this is this worth, or how much should I accept to release it? Um, so there's no statutory framework dealing, dealing with this and what methodology should be used to calculating the damages. Um, lots of people have become familiar with a principle that was established in Stokes and Cambridge, where in the case it was two chartered surveyors who sat on the tribunal and they reached a decision in that case that one third of the value of the land was the appropriate value and that gave rise to the Stokes principle and quite often we see that being referred to by parties, you know, before it's got to us, sort of making reference to that one third of the de development value as what they've got in mind um, in terms of what they'd accept. That's quite a large amount of money then if you're looking at building 500 <laughs> homes on a Huge. area of yeah. land. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It certainly can be. Um, that particular case actually concerned land subject to a compulsory purchase. Um, it's only really a guide because obviously we're dealing with rights being released, but there are certain principles that by analogy people use. Um, so subsequent cases have touched upon how damages can be quantified in this in this area, but it's actually quite clear that what you really need is valuation evidence. Um, so obviously the land will have a market value, um, but if it's quite key to unlocking a development, then it can be worth significantly more. Um, so really the value of the right that would be lost will therefore need to be quantified um, having regard to the proposed development of the land. Um, and as I say, the position is quite important here as to whether there's any way the, the rights and the development can coexist or if it's, you know, they're not, that can't happen at all, um, then the damages will be much higher in that context if it's a full release that's needed in order to proceed. So given that the circumstances of each case can vary so much, there's, there's no sort of easy response to that, um, but it's a very interesting topic. <laughs> Particularly, as we said at the beginning, because of the pressure to build homes, um, uh, and one reads in the papers uh, quite frequently about ideas that people have to build new homes, and there have been some around us, which I'm sure you might have read about in the last week. Well, it's, that's a very interesting area, and thank you, Tristram and Emma, for sharing your thoughts on it. If listeners have got any issues they'd like to discuss with you, they can contact you via our website, charlesrusselspeeches.com, and on social media such as LinkedIn. But thank you very much and goodbye. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.